When we pray together, Father, we come before you hoping to hear your voice. Sometimes I'm personally so flippant and quick to want to not take time to hear you. I ask for forgiveness on that, that you would, even though sometimes I don't give you the light of day, sometimes we're so demanding, we show up and we say, okay, speak, now I'm listening. Help us to be attentive to hear your voice. Help us to take time out of each and every day to set aside and you like to speak to us in still quietness because it shows you that we want to listen and we want to hear your voice. Father, I pray that you would show grace and mercy and that you would speak to us, giving us your Holy Spirit, helping us to live more like you. Thank you that you do have compassion on your people. Thank you that you have given us your spirit to be more like you. Say what it is that you desire. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. I think we all agree that hopefully there needs to be a difference between Christians and non-Christians. Now this needs to be addressed carefully because both Christians and non-Christians are sinful human beings. But sometimes non-Christians seem to have better morals than Christians. (laughs) Not at all times, but in some situations that seems to be the case. I'm afraid that some of us think Christian means what we do on Sunday or that we're like everybody else, but then we go somewhere on Sunday and we happen to have a Bible in our house. (laughs) See, there, there needs to be more. The Bible expresses the fact that Christians are more. There needs to be a marked difference from the rest of the world. There needs to be a counterculture to the culture. And this isn't just because, as in, why do you think different about, I don't know, abortion or homosexuality or sex before marriage or entertainment choices or words words you use. And the answer shouldn't be just because, or I think because I'm a Christian. Rather, Christian experience should say that when I become a citizen of the kingdom of God, and furthermore, that when God decides to live in me, I realize that he thinks differently about the sanctity of life. The sanctity of the human love relationship or the purity of human beings. The purity of things that I bring into my life. There needs to be a difference, not just for difference's sake, but a difference showing that you and I are no longer products of the world. Sons and daughters of the world or a people in the world with just added habits when we become a Christian. The last time we studied together, we went through a fifth doctrine in our faith and practice called human redemption. And in it, we talked about what God has accomplished. We talked about what is the world's profound problem, namely sin. We saw that humans are designed to worship and that sin separates us from any ability to worship rightfully our Creator. And then our Creator God became flesh and took the punishment for our sins, and so now we are reconciled 
We're now to worship and then be fulfilled or live a fulfilled life. But it's more than just, again, a shifting of priorities. It's more than just moving from the world to the kingdom. It's more than just a change positionally, but the Bible calls it a transformation. (laughs) It's a remodel. It's a renovation of the soul. And this is something that doesn't happen naturally by just simply reading books, listening to teaching, and adding some principles to my life and changing my schedule a bit. Something bigger goes on. Our doctrine we look at today is the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And by way of reminder or preface, if you haven't been here, we're going through an examination of ten doctrines in our faith and practice. And our faith and practice has entitled these doctrines essential Christian truths. We're heading into some Quakerly distinctive grounds today. <laughs> And what I mean by that is the Quakers have historically done away with physical rituals or sacraments, namely the Lord's Supper and then baptism. Quakers, historically, they don't have bread and wine. We don't get people wet. (laughs) That's not the case with every Quaker group today. And you'll see, though, expressed in our faith and practice, this historical stance. But I think you will also agree that what is expressed is still truly historical Christian faith. Hear with me about the baptism of the Holy Spirit. It says, We believe Christ's baptism to be the inward receiving of the promised Holy Spirit, whereby the believer is immersed in Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom. This baptism is the essential Christian baptism, an experience of cleansing from sin that supplants Old Covenant rituals. The sanctification that is initiated with this experience as a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in which we are instructed into righteous living and perfected in love. Say that five times fast. (laughs) Thus, sanctification is the work of God's grace by which our affections are purified and exalted to a supreme love of God. Because this is what I'm supposed to do as pastors, as a pastor. I've divvied up this statement into three general flows. (laughs) The statement looks at the essential Christian baptism. It mentions regeneration over ritual. And then it ends on sanctification. And since you have a long time that you can be around here, I'll break up sanctification into three smaller parts. I've actually still written a regular length sermon, so you can stop sweating. (laughs) Essential Christian baptism, regeneration over ritual, and sanctification. As we begin to discuss baptism, we have to note that in the Bible, there is evidence of at least more than one baptism. Perhaps we can see, we can begin to see this as we think of John the Baptist. Silas read for us Luke's account so he can say all those names. But because I don't want to say those names, I'm going to talk about Mark's account. And uh, verse 8, what does John say? He's talking about Jesus. John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. It sounds like John knows a differentiation between two different baptisms, right? A literal physical baptism that John does, and also a literal, true, genuine, valid, just not visible baptism that Jesus does with the Holy Spirit. Does that make sense? You see that? 
I would also note in your Bibles that every time you see these two separate baptisms mentioned, and I put all those uh, verses on your outline, literally every time the baptism of Jesus, that is the baptism with the Holy Spirit, is contrasted and given greater importance over the baptism of John. Now, some of you might be saying, okay, I see that there is a spiritual but effective and real baptism that Jesus gives through the Holy Spirit. So maybe we need two baptisms, Kevin. One with water and the other with the Spirit. (laughs) Because why are people in the book of Acts baptized with water usually immediately after they are saved? Now, I don't know if this will answer your question or produce more questions, but note what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 through 6. He says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Paul says believers are united in one hope, Lord, faith, one baptism, and one God, Father over all. What is the one baptism? Is it John's baptism or Jesus' baptism? Well, I would say it's the baptism of the Holy Spirit that we're all united in. Whether we need to be baptized with water, this kind of becomes another question. Because what our doctrine focuses on, very sneakily, (laughs) is the greater baptism mentioned in our scriptures. The one baptism that Paul likely refers to in Ephesians 4, the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And again, our statement starts, We believe Christ's baptism to be the inward receiving of the promised Holy Spirit, whereby the believer is immersed in Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom. This baptism is the essential Christian baptism. I wonder if you see the reframing here. In our ten doctrines in faith and practice, while it is historically known that traditional Quakers do not practice dunking or water immersion, it appears to me that if we want to be honest with this doctrine, we must note the framing of this very statement. So if you believe and agree that the Bible presents at least two baptisms, one of John or one of Jesus, our statement is just discussing the one of Jesus right now. In other words, it's not even referring to John's baptism. The one of Jesus, the one of the Holy Spirit's immersion is the essential Christian baptism. In other words, this is the one of absolute necessity. The essential, the necessary, the fundamental, or the indispensable baptism is the one of the Holy Spirit. Well, what is it? It's an inward receiving of the promised Holy Spirit. Perhaps it was most plainly promised In John 14, where Jesus says, And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, because it neither receives him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. The Holy Spirit will dwell with and be in Jesus' disciples. And by extension, all of Jesus' disciples, you and me. We see this in Acts that when when more disciples are added to the following of Jesus, they receive the Holy Spirit. In fact, Paul would call the very possession of the Holy Spirit within us the seal of our salvation. 
seal as in a nobleman's seal or the authentication that we are gods. We have the Holy Spirit. I love the summary of what we're being baptized into according to uh, our doctrines. When the Holy Spirit enters us and we're baptized into Christ, our statement says that the believer is immersed in Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom. We're given Jesus' power. That's next on your outline is the word immersed. But we're given Jesus' power. And I think, as I was thinking about what does that look like, the power of Jesus in us, I started thinking of the fruits of the Holy Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Or if you're using the King James, temperance and long-suffering. <laughs> but <clears throat> First of all, out of the fruits of the Spirit, love. Christ gives us the power to love. Janice shared with me a story she heard on the radio a while back about how a Christian once witnessed to a vampire. As in, that's right, the Christian came into contact with a self-professing vampire who drank animals' blood. She thought she was immortal or that doing such practices made her immortal. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm naturally one to get turned off by this, like I'm not even going to waste my time. Goodbye. (laughs) Jesus' power to love is to love the uncomfortable, to love the outsider. I mean, in fact, this Christian witness to her, it's a great story, this vampire got saved. To love the stranger. Jesus' power to love is to love the word strange. <laughs> er, stranger. Jesus' power of love is also long-suffering because Jesus' love forgives over and over again. And I know some of you and the family members you have, or you know that long-suffering love. The love that hurts, but you keep loving because you have to. The love that you have for those hard-to-love ones is birthed, I believe, by the Holy Spirit. We also have Jesus' power and joy. Luke 10.21 says that Jesus rejoiced in the Holy Spirit. Or Hebrews says that with the cross in sight, it was Jesus' joy set before Him to endure it. See, Jesus' power and joy is to be joyful when no circumstance would make any normal person have reason to find joy. For many of us, that's 2020. Are you joyful in 2020? (laughs) Probably Holy Spiritual power to be that joyful. (laughs) You and I can always find joy in God because He's a great Savior and He's a great Redeemer. And what he has done and what he is doing and what he will do is always cause for joy. Love, joy, and peace. You and I have Jesus' power and peace. When, when Jesus promises the Holy Spirit, he even says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you, not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You know, this last week, In fact, every week in the fall of 2020, as we draw closer to election season, I begin to have the fear of backlash, what might happen when either candidate is elected. Like, I know my own tribe, they're a little crazy. (laughs) The opposing parties are so sure of their stances, and the opposing parties seem so afraid of the implications of what it means if their opponent is put into the White House or stays in the White House and 
that what I fear is what's going to happen. Now, it was an honest fear this past week that I had as I thought about that. But what I see here in Jesus' statement is the promise of peace. And we need to hear it as the disciples heard it, because here were the disciples afraid that Jesus is saying, I'm going to go and I'm going to die. (laughs) And the disciples have been walking with a man who has been controversial, to say the least, a guy named Jesus. He's ticked off the Jewish establishment. And before this night is done, in John 14, the worldly rulers, Rome in particular, is going to execute him. Where does that leave the disciples? The remaining group who followed a controversial, now condemned to death, judge guilty insurrectionists in the eyes of some. With all that coming rather quickly, Jesus says, My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Don't look for that peace in the world. (laughs) Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. That's the power that the Holy Spirit gives. Peace. A knowledge. A deep knowledge to know if if you're like me, what's going to happen the day after election day? Peace to know that you and I don't have to be afraid. We don't have to have troubled hearts. The heart, as we use the word in English, often referring to the core, the essence of a being. And Jesus is saying to His disciples who are about to lose Him in the flesh and be exposed to the world who killed their Master and will want to kill them. Jesus is saying, in the essence of who you are, don't let any part of you be afraid. I bring and I give you peace. Jesus' power does that in us. I'm afraid that if I kept going through the fruits of the Spirit, I would extend this sermon out longer than need be. Hopefully you get the picture that the power of Jesus is Jesus' powerful love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. All these things, these powerful attributes that we see demonstrated in Jesus can be given to us. But our statement then says we're also immersed in Jesus' purity. Now, the first segment, Jesus' power, referred to a more active element. But now we talk about both a passive and active element. And that we, it's passive in the sense that we are covered by the blood of Jesus. Therefore, to God, we are pure. Some of you are like me. You've been a Christian for a very, very long time and you've heard stuff like this all your life, but you still don't believe it or at least you wrestle with it. But God sees Jesus when He sees you. God sees Jesus when He sees you. It doesn't get any more clearer than what Paul says in Romans 8, 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for you. Why? Because you are in Christ Jesus. But this purity is twofold. We are pure as Christ. But hold on to this second tidbit. We're going to revisit it at the end of our statement. But the purity that we're also immersed into is an active purity. It's a purifying, sanctifying thing that we go through. We're pure passively. God sees us as pure. We've done nothing to do that. But then we're also pure actively. We're going to start growing into pure people. Like I said, we're going to come back to that. But for now, we're immersed again into Jesus' power. We talked about that. And Jesus' purity. And then lastly, into His wisdom. 
his wisdom. It's so interesting to me that many atheists see as a mark of, of wisdom to in fact ignore, diminish, or dismiss God. But rather, to become a believer and be baptized into the Holy Spirit is to be baptized in the wisdom of God Himself. Paul says to the church in Corinth that Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Did you hear the hyperbole in that? So in other words, God at his dumbest moments, which there aren't any, but for illustration's sake, that's the point of hyperbole. God at his dumbest moments, his wisdom still far outdoes any other person. What's very audacious in my mind is that many people doubt that. Right? Like, they wouldn't word it this way, but when people doubt the Bible, criticize the Bible, they're saying, yeah, well, that's how God does it, but I... Or, that's what God says, but he didn't go to community college like I did, and he doesn't have three degrees past my name. Like, really, in our brightest moments, we don't even touch the surface of God's dumbest days. When we become believers, and when we're put into Christ's baptism, we begin to receive some of that wisdom. How many of you, this is your testimony, like, the world made a whole lot more sense When you realize there is a creator, there is such a thing as sin, the world's guilty of sin. Our creator does redeem. He redeems me. And I want to see him redeem others. That's our only hope. Wisdom. We got to move on if we're ever going to finish. But that's the essential Christian baptism. A baptism received on the inside from Christ, being immersed into Christ's power, purity, and wisdom. Next, we hit a brief statement in the middle of our doctrine, which kind of goes back to the Quaker understanding. In fact, some of you may have noted the way I divvied divvied this statement up. I took a phrase at the beginning of one sentence and I tacked it on the first part. But now I'm going to give that statement back here. It says, This is the essential Christian baptism, an experience of cleansing from sin that supplants old covenant rituals. For human redemption, which we studied last time, I said that Jesus showed up in two ways at the very fall of man. The very moment when it all went south, this is what Silas was praying about, but that crux from, hey, we're in a perfect world, to, hey, we're in a messed up world, Jesus showed up in two ways, word and deed. He showed up in word when God said to the serpent, I will put enmity between you, the serpent or Satan, and the woman, representing here the child of God, between your offspring, child, children of the serpent or the evil one, and her offspring. Paul tells us in Galatians that more than just offspring in a general sense, the offspring or seed in particular is Jesus, the Son of God. That's in Galatians 3.16. God continues, He shall bruise your, the serpent's head. That's a fatal blow whenever you're hitting somebody in the head. And you shall bruise his heel. That's also a blow, but it's not fatal because Jesus rises again. Jesus is prophesied in word. But then the deed part was trickier. I mentioned Genesis 3.21 where it says, And the Lord God made for Adam and his wife garments of skins and clothed them. And we talked about the fact that in order to make clothes for Adam and Eve, what needed to happen? Adam or the animals needed to be sacrificed in order to do so. 
So this foreshadows Jesus indeed, because he too is broken. His blood is shed, and he covers us from our sin and our shame as well. The sacrifice of animals, as many of you might know, becomes the system in the Old Testament. It's about substitution. It's about my sins deserve punishment, but my God is gracious and that he's willing to not take my blood. He'll let some other creature's blood take my blood's place. Therefore, animals are sacrificed. Hebrews chapters 9 and 10 has this phrase a few times, once for all. And it talks about how the old covenant system was a foreshadow or a prelude, an example for us so that in Christ we see what happens. That where the blood of goats and calves were offered continuously, Christ comes and he's a perfect sacrifice in all senses of the word. He's human like us as opposed to animals. He's sinless, unlike us. So he's a better sacrifice than we could ever be. And because he's sinless, he can then bear the sacrifice in that he doesn't die. Well, he does die, but he resurrects because he's not with sin. And because Christ is a perfect sacrifice in all senses of the word, Hebrews 10.10 then says, We have been sanctified through the offering of the blood of Jesus, excuse me, the body of Jesus, once for all. The old covenant is done. There's no need to offer animals anymore. Christ has offered the one sacrifice needed for all people for all time. But what else is true? Christ has fulfilled all types of rituals and foreshadows from the Old Testament. The book of Hebrews is about all that. Christ is the greater Moses. He's the friend of God. He's the mediator between God and man who liberates us from the captives of the world. Just as Moses liberated the Israelites from the captives of Egypt. Christ is the better promised land provider, the better Joshua. And he leads us to Sabbath rest just as Joshua led God's people to the promised land. Christ is a better priest and a better sacrifice. And Christ supplants all these Old Testament symbols. And so we see evidence in the Bible that there are foreshadows where Christ becomes the substance. The New Testament makes sense for, uh, for us, the Old Testament. Because if you read the Old Testament and you say, what is with all this blood and all these sacrifices? Christ comes and he answers our questions. Christ is the meaning of the spilt blood, his blood for our blood, his sacrifice for all time. And our statement says rightfully that the important baptism, just as John the Baptist said, the greater baptism is the one of the Holy Spirit. What the Holy Spirit does in our lives is the essential baptism. Yes, it's symbolized by water. <laughs> but what's more significant really taking place? Is it my getting wet or is it my getting Jesus' power, purity, and wisdom put into me? The latter. The regeneration of my life is more important than the ritual. Last we, lastly, we talk about the regeneration or more particularly the sanctification, a big word meaning maturing in Christ. This is the last part of our statement. It reads, the sanctification that is initiated. You're going to have to think about these words. I mean, I had to think about them earlier in the week, so this is your turn. The sanctification that is initiated with this experience is a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in which we are instructed into righteous living and perfected in love. 
Thus, sanctification is the work of God's grace by which our affections are purified and exalted to a supreme love of God. This last segment of doctrine can be broken down into three more parts about sanctification. And that is, we are <clears throat> instructed by the Holy Spirit. We, it is predicated by God's grace. And lastly, it is proved by outward affections. Instructed by the Holy Spirit, predicated by God's grace, and proved by outward affections. Again, our statement says, this the sanctification that is initiated with this experience is a continuing work of the Holy Spirit in which we are instructed into righteous living and perfected in love. The baptism of the Holy Spirit is an immersion deep into Jesus and in that we are instructed by him. Jesus, when he promises the Holy Spirit again, he says, but the helper the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. The Holy Spirit is teaching us. One of my favorite verses, I'm pretty sure I've already quoted it in this series because it's kind of the paramount Quaker verse in my mind. 1 John 2.27 says, But the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. You have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as, just, as it, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Do the words abide in him remind you of anything? It reminds me of John 15 where Jesus says to his followers, abide in me and I in you. That's the baptism of the Holy Spirit. We're, we're being immersed into the Holy Spirit so, so much that he's the one producing fruit. He's the one teaching us. He's the one instructing us. It's a continual thing to where it's not just, okay, I went to church, got saved, now what? <laughs> now, you and I are in one long baptism. <laughs> We're being sanctified in this Holy Spirit's baptism. We're being instructed by the Holy Spirit. This Holy Spirit baptism too, just like conversion, is predicated by God's grace. Our statement simply says this, thus sanctification is the work of God's grace. Do you ever think about that? We're saved by God's grace. Grace being His loving kindness, His unmerited favor. But we're also sanctified by His grace. See, we got into the pickle of sin. God dug us out. We've been warped and, and acclimated to our sinful, fallen world, and God's the one deciding to untangle our mess for us even after He saves us. I know you hate theologians, but every now and then they get very practical and they love to use illustrations. A common illustration that I even read in the most college of textbooks is an illustration of salvation of a sinking person. God is the rescuer. He throws the lifeboat. He reaches the hand down. Under just like he did with Peter to pull him out of the water. I'm going to piggyback off of that illustration. And what sanctification is, is not only God pulling us up to save us from our sinking, but then he gets on the boat with us and then he gets off the boat whenever he gets to the docks. He follows us home and he says, you know, I want to better your life. <laughs> I want to make changes in your life. You got debt? I want to get you out. You got broken relationships? I'm going to show you how to mend them. You got bad habits? I'll finish them for you. You got dirty closets? Let's start cleaning. 
Now, that's a nice illustration. But then there's another half of you like me, and you say, that's a nice illustration, but do you have a verse? (laughs) I gave you a Quaker verse, but now I'm going to give you a Nazarene verse. (laughs) Now, it could be that all these verses are in the Bible, and they're just Christian verses. But in any case, Nazarenes love these two verses at the end of 1 Thessalonians 5, 22, or excuse me, 23 and 24. Peter says to the Thessalonians, now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. Sanctify, make you mature, better you, not leave you rescued from the seas and on the boat, but then come home with you. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that's a tall order. (laughs) I mean, we just read through those words like, okay, that's what's on TV next. (laughs) Paul says to the Christians in Thessalonica, may you be on the path of spiritual maturity. In fact, be blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. In other words, when he comes back, may he find in you a blameless person. Are any of you blameless yet? (laughs) I'm not, and I'm the pastor. I've got some sins I'm always working through. How is this going to happen? How am I going to be blameless, sanctified? Paul says it's God's grace here in verse 24. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. I try to be, but it's a gift of the Holy Spirit to be faithful. I try to be faithful. I'm not always faithful. But Jesus is faithful. The Holy Spirit is faithful. And He will surely do this sanctifying thing. Sanctification is predicated by God's grace. Lastly, sanctification is proved by outward affections. Now, this is the kicker. <laughs> baptism in the rest of the Protestant church versus baptism in the Quakers is the simple thing, right? See, the rest of the Protestants find rich symbolism in the immersion of water rising up in the new man. Quakers love symbolism, but they have higher standards than just water. They want symbolism of the new inner life proven by the outer life. (laughs) The actions, outward affections. Our statement ends this way. Thus, sanctification is the work of God's grace. We just finished talking about that. By which our affections are purified and exalted to a supreme love of God. If Jesus lives in you, if his power and purity and wisdom are in you, you're going to be regenerated. The reset button has been pressed. And if you're immersed in Christ to where he's abiding in you and producing fruit, that fruit should not be worldly. This is going to hurt. It hurt me, so I'm in the boat with your hurt. (laughs) If communing with Christ doesn't sound as exciting as communing with your TV, you need to reconsider your baptism. If the only difference between you and your non-Christian acquaintances or friends is your schedule on Sunday morning, you need to reconsider your baptism. If you find yourself siding with famous personalities and you find yourself being instructed or being influenced and being led and you're following people who aren't Christians or maybe claim to be Christian, but they appear nominally at best, you need to reconsider your baptism. Because who Christ is, is a present teacher, a present leader, and he's your king and he's your sovereign. I'm going to close with a personal illustration. It's an illustration to demonstrate that I don't have this down as well as I should. It's a current event, and I want to say first and foremost, I really don't mean this as a swipe at the Catholic Church, but maybe many of you have heard, and I'll pull it directly from a headline, that Pope Francis 
voices support of same-sex civil unions for gay couples. Now, this headline needs to be read carefully, and the article needs to be read because it's not as cut and dry as it sounds. Voices support. And in that, there's lots left unsaid, and I'll let you look up articles on your own time, develop your own opinions. But at first sight of this headline, what happened for me? Well, even though I'm not Catholic, there was this concern of this, that no matter what the Pope really said or what he's implying, the newsmakers are trying to take him and run with, make him say things that they wish for him to say because he's a respected leader of many Christians, mostly Catholic, but some even Protestant. And it's no different from any other well-respected Christian leaders in the Protestant church suddenly affirming this or that. And sadly, what happens are some Christians who are eager to follow Follow persons down wrong teachings because, hey, it's this teacher. Teachers are great. The Bible tells us that they're even gifts from God to the church. But don't lose sight of what's true if you're immersed in Christ. If you're baptized in Christ, at the end of the day, the anointing that you receive from him abides in you. And you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything and is true and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Friends, the essential Christian baptism or the baptism that you must be immersed in is one that is about regeneration over ritual. And it results in sanctification. Water baptism, hey, in our day and age, many Quakers make allowances for it, even in our church and our denomination. But a greater question that we should answer is, are you baptized with the greater baptism that John the Baptist spoke about? Let's pray. Father, uh, humorously, all I can think of is, I think it's Missouri, it's called the show me state. But I thought about that because Quakers are asking, hey, are you baptized? Show me. Father, if we're baptized in you, there should be some fruit. There should be some sanctification taking place. There should be a desire to end sins in our lives, a desire to seek your forgiveness and true contrition whenever we have sinned. Father, there should be evidence of your Holy Spirit living inside us, teaching us, to be more like you, recalling to us the things that you taught us, recalling to us your word. Father, if we're baptized, do we show it? And if we're not showing it, would you forgive us? Would you help us to repent? Would you help us to seek you to be more like you? Father, help us to never forget that despite what teachers say, some of them teach good things, many of them teach bad things, that we have the present teacher the Holy Spirit living inside us to discern right from wrong. We have your pure words in our hands through the Bible that you can teach us as well. Father, help us as we go about our day and night to truly gauge if we're baptized in you. Thank you for the baptism that you give us. We love you. We want to serve you. We love to serve you. Thank you that you love us. And thank you that even though you are calling us to a deeper sanctification, we love what Paul says, that he who saved us is faithful, and he's faithful to do this as well. Thank you for your faithfulness. We ask and we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.